This audio presentation was pre-recorded and edited for brevity and clarity. Hello, I'm Michael Buckley of the Bright Focus Foundation. Welcome to today's Bright Focus Chat. AMD, your questions answered. This is your first time on a Bright Focus Chat. Welcome. Let me take a moment to tell you about Bright Focus and what we'll do today. Bright Focus funds some of the top researchers in the world. We're funding scientists all over the globe who are trying to find cures for macular degeneration, glaucoma, and Alzheimer's. We share the latest findings from these scientists and and other best practices with families that are impacted by these diseases. We offer a number of free publications and plenty of materials on our website, brightfocus.org. And today's Bright Focus chat is another way of sharing this information. I tell you about today's chat, AMD, all your questions answered. We're really fortunate to have uh, one of the leading uh, vision researchers in the country join us today. Uh, his, his name is Dr. Prethru Metu. And Dr. Metu is at Duke University. He's a retina specialist, and his research involves testing new treatments and imaging technologies for age-related macular degeneration. He sees uh, patients in the clinic at Duke University. And a few years ago, Dr. Metu was a recipient of a Bright Focus research grant to study uh, some of these aspects of macular degeneration. So, uh, Dr. Metu... Thank you very much for joining us. Now, you were part of a Bright Focus chat uh, a couple years back. I was wondering if you, we could just start with your telling our listeners what you do and, and uh, kind of why you, why you find uh, this type of research and, and practice interesting. Well, Michael, thank you very much, and, and um, I'm pleased to be here. Thank you for the opportunity. So um, my background, uh, so I'm a clinician and a scientist. Um, I see, as you mentioned, I do uh, as a retina specialist um, I take care of patients with age-related macular degeneration and uh, diabetic retinopathy, as well as other macular diseases uh, here at Duke University. And uh, when I'm not in the clinic, I am in the laboratory. And uh, my uh, research is, spans both actually the laboratory and clinical research. Um, the, my work is focused on trying to understand uh, the mechanisms of disease for uh, wet macular degeneration that doesn't respond well to the available uh, anti-VEGF uh, shots that um, I know many of our listeners uh, who have macular degeneration receive. Uh, and and our, my focus is on primarily on trying to identify those mechanisms and perhaps unearth uh, new targets that allow us to develop new and more effective treatments. And uh, clinical trials are really focused on trying to test out uh, some of the novel uh, treatments that are coming, that are being evaluated uh, for macular degeneration, diabetic retinopathy, and, and other macular diseases. Well, great. That, thank you very much for that overview. And as Dr. Matu mentioned, uh, in, uh, injections are a, a common uh, treatment for folks with AMD. And so, not surprisingly, Dr. Matu, we have several questions um, about these injections. The first is, what are some of the most common side effects of getting injections over a long-term basis? That's a great question. Um, we know that, um, th- and that on a short-term basis, uh, the main side effects that, that patients can get are typically related to the injection, uh, and that might involve a little bit of short-term discomfort at the site of the injection or a little bit of redness or bleeding. The fortunate thing is, is that if, you, if, we're looking, if we're talking about the health of the eye, uh, the long-term, uh, the, the common, the side effects of long-term sustained treatment are actually quite favorable. Um, for most patients, the, the treat, treatment with with the shots, anti-VEGF shots, for many years is safe 
and very well tolerated. These medications have been around now for uh, about 12, over 12 years, and all of the available data looking at patients who've had treatment for 7, 10 years suggests that patients can receive these injections with very few uh, Ill, Ill side effects. Well, thank you. And uh, as you can imagine, another question uh, says, is there any new research that would eliminate what this person calls the dreaded needle? Well, also a very good question. I think that hits to an unmet need of treatment burden, uh, the burden that our patients have to face for coming, having to come in um, very frequently for shots and also on their family members who have to take a day off of work to come in. And, and in some respects, even for our, our, um, our, our retina doctors who are trying to manage um, a busy practice of patients that, that do need uh, these frequent shots. The good news is that I think on the horizon are going to be a host of, of, of new treatment opportunities, um, specifically around extended release uh, treatments. So it, the, the mechanism of action will be similar to some of our currently available treatments, but they'll last longer. So instead of having, the goal would be instead of having to come in every month for a shot, that you maybe come in once every six months to get a shot. That doesn't quite take away the needle, but at least it decreases the frequency of it. There's also other initiatives to try to develop um, eye drops um, uh, to try to treat the disease. And uh, um, those are still in the very early stages, so it remains to be seen uh, whether that could be an effective treatment approach. Yeah. Well, thanks. This is a really interesting answer. I like your expression, uh, treatment burden, because I think that uh, captures what's difficult for families, but also healthcare practices and the healthcare system. And appreciate the, the sense of, of optimism there. And uh, one other question we have related to shots is a person says, What happens if I stop getting the injections? Yeah, so great question. Um, we now have um, multiple studies looking at. How do patients do with varying uh, levels of injection frequency? And I think the biggest problem facing our patients is actually under-treatment, meaning that they're not actually getting enough shots. So all of the studies now show that, on average, patients need, need um, between six to eight shots a year. Some patients may need fewer, some patients more. Um, but that long-term sustained treatment is important for disease control. When you stop the shots, for the vast majority of patients, that increases the risk that your that vision will vision loss will happen either gradually over time or could happen suddenly in the event of a, having a, a significant bleed inside the eye. So maintaining a regular schedule of treatment to suppress the disease uh, is is critically important uh, for long for maintaining long term good vision. Great. We just got another listener question about about these injections. How do you as a clinician know what is the right amount of um, frequency, the right amount of intervals uh, for which a person should return to get shots? Is that something that varies by person, or how, how do you uh, reach that, um, you know, that suggested uh, cadence? So um, our goal is really to, uh, to make the disease go dormant with treatment. By dormant, that means that it's not active, there's no fluid leakage, uh, there's no sign that the blood vessel, the blood vessel that snuck up underneath the retina, uh, that that's the sort of the hallmark of the disease. There's no sign that that blood vessel is getting bigger, uh, and there's no sign of of bleeding. And so the goal is to basically, when we st the, our strategy to achieve that is typically to inject once a month for the first three months, and then reevaluate and say where you know is 
have we completely suppressed the disease activity or there's still is there still active disease? If we've suppressed the disease activity, we can begin to gradually extend the interval between shots. That approach is the approach that's used by most retina specialists is called treat and extend. And the goal is to treat and try to extend the interval between shots. Um, if the if at the end of the initial three treatments um, there's still active disease, then we have to consider um, alternative approaches, and and that varies by retina specialist. Uh, sometimes it's switching to one of the other other available anti-VEGF medications. Uh, sometimes that's uh, adding in kind of adjunctive uh, treatments. Um, uh, like certain types of laser treatment. So, uh, some uh, retina practitioners utilize that as an adjunctive treatment. Uh, I, um, I and, and some of my colleagues here at Duke uh, are among uh, the, uh, that group. Uh, so so the, the long-term goal really is, is to try to use just enough treatment to suppress the disease um, and, and manage the treatment burden. Great stuff. One more question on injections, then we're going to move on to some dietary uh, questions. Uh, we have a listeners wondering, should someone with dry AMD get these injections? So the short answer is no. Um, the the shots really only uh, are effective for wet macular degeneration, and um, they don't really help dry macular degeneration. Um, there are uh, some folks who've wondered, well, you know, could you prevent um, wet macular degeneration? And in theory, that would be possible, but we know that it's only a small percentage of people that actually de of the total population of dry macular degeneration patients that develop wet macular degeneration. So if you if you took that approach, you'd be treating a lot of people needlessly and exposing them to to the burden associated with frequent shots um, uh, just to just to do that. And so it's really not a, an, an efficient approach, both from a population standpoint or for really the individual patient. Great, thank you. I appreciate that. So turning to um to diet, we have a, a number of people have questions about the connection between what you eat and how you see. And I guess sort of we'll start with the big picture question: uh, What type of foods should someone with uh, AMD uh, be eating? So um, that's a good question. I think that the good news is that you're not going to hear from me advice that's different from what you might hear from your regular doctor, or or uh, or that you might hear from a heart doctor. Uh, or or a, um, a neurologist or a stroke doctor. Really, the the main uh, kinds of dietary focus should be around um, uh, a diet that's rich in green leafy vegetables, uh, healthy uh, fruits that are not necessarily high in sugar, uh, lower fat. Uh, so uh, you know, reducing kind of the, the the unhealthy fats in the diet, maybe focusing on healthier fats. Um, like uh, like the, the fat that you might have in in, in salmon, for example, um, and um, and really combining that with uh, exercise, uh, and so from a dietary standpoint, um, th those those are those sort of general recommendations. I think are are really consistent with what's important for overall health. Well, great, appreciate that. And one, uh, we have a listener who's wondering: Should they avoid vitamin A? as an apple, should they avoid vitamin A in the foods that they eat? So I don't think it's necessary to avoid vitamin A. Um, the the levels of, vi so we know that actually um, vitamin A is part of the um, the A-Res vitamin supplements. So uh, when taken at, um, at, at 
a certain level of dosage, you can, it's actually part of a cocktail of vitamins that can be helpful. Um, mega doses of vitamin A, uh, which you could really only achieve through taking um, vitamin A supplements, may not be healthy and, and, and could potentially cause harm. But uh, I think it would be very difficult to, to do that uh, through just regular food. So I don't think it's necessary to avoid vitamin A uh, in foods unless there's something specific about your health or condition that you or your doctor might be aware of. Thank you. And uh, another question we have, Dr. Matu, is does alcohol affect AMD? So there are some studies looking at, you know, how does alcohol consumption influence macular degeneration? And um, there's really not conclusive data to suggest that, you know, moderate or or even high alcohol consumption uh, increases the risk. There's some epidemiologic data that suggests a weak association, but it's not conclusive. Um, I, my general advice to my patients is to, just to think about it in terms of their overall health. I mean, we know that drinking alcohol in excess is not good for for your overall health. Uh, your uh, and you know specifically can cause things like liver damage, um, and so that's not such a great idea. Um, alcohol in moderation, um, one or two uh, glasses of wine uh, per day, is not unreasonable um, if if that's something that that uh, you and your doctor uh, feel like is 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 allowable given your your health condition, um, but I, there's also on the flip side no data to suggest that necessarily that is helpful. Um, so I think really kind of following uh, what the general recommendations for alcohol consumption are kind of appropriate for um, for thinking about it in the context of macular degeneration. Yeah. Well, thank you. Um, one more uh, question, um, I guess, maybe related to to medications. Uh, we have a listener wondering if there's any correlation um, between the use of Ambien, the medicine Ambien, and uh, macular degeneration. Well, I'm not aware of that, um, and uh, that's uh, it's um, to my knowledge, there's no specific association uh, between uh, the use of Ambien and the development of, of macular degeneration. Um, there. Um, you know, to sort of take a step back and think about it in terms of, you know, in general, are there specific medications that you have to be concerned about? Um, you know, I think the short answer is um, not so much. Um, you know, I think that that we have to think in terms of, you know, what are things that potentially potentiate the disease? So um, they're, they're not too many medications that that really kind of rise to the top of the list as as, as uh, raising level of concern. One thing that sometimes comes up is um, Coumadin or Warfarin or other blood thinners. Um, sometimes that can be um, a, at least a, a concern for patients with wet macular degeneration because uh, those patients are at risk for getting bleeding inside the eye. And so um, what I usually discuss with patients is that the important thing is that um, that they are being monitored by their their doctor uh, uh, their, about their use of blood thinners and ma- at least making sure that their doctor feels like it's necessary for them to do that for their systemic health because that's what comes first. Um, but I think it's important for patients to let their um, let their uh, eye doctors and the retina specialists know that that is one of their medications because that does at least heighten our awareness to the potential risk of um, of bleeding. Well, that's great. That's a really important point. Thanks for that. And I want to just just stay on that topic of of informing your 
your physician about um, other medications and conditions. And you know, in your experience as a clinician, do you have any guidance for for us about what? How can someone make the most out of their doctor's uh, out of their doctor's appointment? Yeah, great question. So, I think the first step is so. Um, Many times, um, patients are referred to a retina specialist by their by um, their 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 main eye doctor or um, by another doctor. And so, I think the first step is to perhaps just make sure that um, they bring in hand any any prior records of of um, uh, prior evaluations or or imaging or treatment. That's often helpful to kind of inform the current state of your disease, and and help for plan help help that your um, your doctor give you an informed opinion about about what's best for you, um, and then I think uh, if it, in other cases you're going to the doctor for the first time and you're just sort of you, someone's raised the possibility that you might have macular degeneration or that you might have a retina problem, and and um, I think the the main thing there is just to to really focus on. Um, Kind of the question. If there's any questions that you know that you have, jot those down um, because there'll be a lot of inf- lot of information coming to you, and uh, in, the, in that moment, it can be difficult to remember everything you want to know. Um, and then also just to realize, you know, uh, many times, and uh, when you're a patient, you're getting information for the first time, and it and it can hit you all at once. And um, it's important that to give yourself time and space to process that. Um, but then it's also important at the end of your visit to ask, okay, did I did I really understand everything that they told me? And if you didn't, then I think it's important in that moment to to sort of say, okay, you know, well, here's what I wasn't sure about. Could you tell me more about this? Could you could you give me some more information about that? And having that dialogue, I think, is important uh, because it allows um, us as the as the as the doctors to to know where you're coming from and to know uh, what are the things that are of of greatest concern to you, um, and uh, I think that's that's most important. Um, kind of kind of giving yourself that space to process that information, but then uh, also making sure that before you leave that that you have a that you feel comfortable about 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 what you've heard and and what you understand. Yeah, well, thank you. That's really helpful. And just you know, kind of. Staying on those those good points for a second, I think to, uh, we've, we get a few questions uh, here about clinical trials. I'm wondering when you talk with your patients about clinical trials, like what are some of the the key points you make, or what are some of the the, the key questions that someone who is learning about clinical trials or considering that for for themselves or a family member, what are some of the key points in a conversation uh, with a doctor about clinical trials? So I think the first question um, to you know to ask your doctor is is you know well. Tell me about my stages of the disease and how would you classify it? Um, you know, am I in, in early stages of the disease? Am I in advanced stages of the disease? And and um, and and what and and what based upon that, what would you um, uh, what can I expect uh, going forward? Um, and then once that's once you understand that part, I think then the next question is really just to say, well, are you aware uh, uh, if uh, are you aware of any? This is specifically true for dry macular degeneration, um, since there aren't any available treatments. Uh, are, you know, are you aware of of any available trials or or anything on the horizon? And um, we're fortunate in that we are at a time when there are a number of um, uh, biotech and pharma companies that are trying to test and develop new drugs for dry macular degeneration. Um, 
and you're, you, they should be able to basically sort of highlight to you kind of given your stage of disease, what are the potentially available trials that are out there and whether you might or may not be a good candidate for it. And then the other question is, is if they are not, they are not directly participating in trials, are they aware of where, you know, the, where are some of their colleagues uh, located who might, um, you know, be participating in some of those studies. Um, and I think the other thing to think about is just logistically, you know, what's the commitment? Uh, many trials require patients to come in once a month uh, for, for, you know, up to two years. And so uh, as you begin to, to evaluate specific trials and whether or not that's a good fit, the first step is just saying, is this something that, you know, I could commit to? The other thing to think about is what's the, how is the study structured? Is it, uh, will everybody in the trial be getting an, an act, a active drug that's being tested that, so you know you'll be getting a drug, or will it be what's called placebo control, meaning half the patients will get the active drug, half the patients will get um, uh, a, a, a basically a, a, a control uh, that doesn't have the drug? And just understanding that from the outset will help you to understand uh, help you to feel like whether or not that's a good fit for what you're looking for. Great. Those are all real good points. Uh, Dr. Mitchell, I want to turn to a couple of questions here about lifestyle. And, um, you know, I think it's interesting when you said you're, the advice that you give uh, about healthy living is similar to what people are probably hearing from other other physicians in their, in their lives. So we have someone who asked about, you know, if you want to play tennis or, or walk or bike outside, um, are there any uh, AMD risks from sort of being active out in the sun? No, the good news is is that uh, being outdoors and, and um, being active is, is actually a positive. Um, uh, being re- regularly scheduled exercise and activity is, uh, is a positive for overall health, and um, it, it's a positive for the health of your eyes as well. Um, so I don't think there's any specific concerns with that. Uh, a particular type of sunglasses people should wear. I think I, I always find that the, the different letters and numbers associated with sunglasses can be a little overwhelming. Do you have a uh, any guide to, to help people? So um, I think um, uh, there is some thought that uh, UV with sun exposure that UV light um, could ha- or, or blue light could have some effect on uh, as a risk factor for the disease. There's some that's that's not a um, uh, that's still an open question. That's, there, there's not complete agreement around that. That being said, um, I advise my patients that it can't hurt to basically uh, take a, be appropriately cautious and, and have sunglasses uh, when you're out on a bright sunny day. So I think um, sunglasses that have um, you know, that that have some degree of UV blocking um, is uh, potentially uh, helpful. Uh, that also has to be balanced, though, against kind of the tint of the glasses. So we know that many patients with macular degeneration have um, difficulty seeing under low light conditions. So one of the questions that comes up often is, is should I get um, uh, what's, the, what's called transition lenses, the, the um, glasses that will darken when you step outside and uh, lighten up when you come inside? It can be, it can work for some folks, but one of the challenges is, Challenges is, is that sometimes those glasses can stay dark um, even under 
um, uh, lower lighting conditions, and that can make it harder uh, to see well uh, if you don't have if you're if if the lighting in the room isn't 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 optimal. Well, well, that's that. You you anticipated the next question we had from a caller who was wondering about interior light. Is there any particular type of lighting level or types of of light bulbs um, in in an interior setting that are best for for uh, patients with AMD? So I think the right lighting or the right level of light is what what whatever you feel helps you see and function optimally. Um, but I but I think it can't be overstated that um, you know in 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 a home that uh, if your home has you know fewer windows and you don't have uh, sufficient lighting that can definitely make it difficult uh, to be able to see well around the home and, and can create some issues for mobility. Can also just sort of make it harder to to um, uh, to function optimally. And so uh, I think. Making sure that that your that the rooms in your home are are, are well lit and and um, that you're comfortable uh, with what you're able to see given the level of lighting is important. Great. And then, kind of final question on that kind of lighting. Um, we had a uh, caller wondering if there a particular type of glasses that they should wear while um, uh, working on a computer or a tablet or watching TV. Um, I know you mentioned blue light a minute ago. Is there any type of um, Precautions or, or best practices for uh, screen time. Nothing specific. Um, I think the the major issue that arises is really just kind of finding um, glasses that have um, appropriate sort of strength for intermediate working distance, particularly if you're looking at a computer screen. So that's the first consideration. Um, and then um, I, I'm not as concerned with the, the ambient light coming from the screen in most cases, uh, that's generally not posing a significant risk. So what, usually beyond that, whatever whatever works best for the individual. Great. Thank you. And Dr. Matu, we had a, a, a listener wondering, is AMD genetic? More specifically, is it something uh, that their, their children should be worried about? So there are um, um, definite genetic risk factors. Um, for age-related macular degeneration, um, typically when you when we think about a genetic disease, we think about well, my grandmother had it, my mother had it, my aunt had it, and I'm going to have it. Well, the genetics uh, for macular degeneration don't quite work like that. Really, um, we know that there are certain uh, genetic factors that increase the risk of getting the disease, um, and so it doesn't mean that because you have that genetic signature that you're going to get the disease, but it, it, it's one extra mark in in your overall risk profile for the disease. Uh, we're still trying to understand more about how that genetic risk actually impacts the disease process, um, but it, it's really more about your overall, how it affects your overall risk profile for the disease. Right, and then um, kind of staying on, you mentioned some of the, the research going on about <clears throat> about genetics. We had a, a kind of a, a simply phrased but very important question from a listener uh, who asks, is there any hope for a cure for AMD? So I don't think there's going to be a cure um, because I think that this is a complex disease that um, is affected by genetic risk factors, by lifestyle factors. We didn't mention it, but one of probably the biggest lifestyle factor increasing the risk of macular degeneration is, is smoking and, and tobacco use. Um, 
we know that it's a, it's basically a disease of environmental exposures, uh, lifestyle, as well as um, some degree of genetic risk factors. So since it's a complex disease, there's probably not going to be a single drug or single treatment that will cure the disease. That said, there, I think, are a lot of promising research to suggest that we're understanding more about the disease mechanisms. And I can envision a time, and, you know, five years from now, where there may be a treatment for patients with dry macular degeneration, and maybe 10, 15, 20 years from now, where we're talking about really a combination of different of, of treatments with different mechanisms or different ways they work um, that, that work to, to kind of either slow the disease or boost vision for affected patients. You can kind of think about it like high, in the current situation for high blood pressure. Many years ago, there weren't treatments for high blood pressure, but now we have really three, three four, five, six different options of different types of treatments. So that would be the ideal, that we begin to understand more about the mechanisms and we can offer a variety of treatments that affect, that affect the disease in different ways. Oh, and I appreciate that. And our next chat will be on April 25th. And you can stay on the line today and leave your name and phone number to register for the April 25th chat. So, Dr. Matu, I just want to conclude by thanking thanking you so much both for for your for your great research that you're doing in the lab and and uh, and with patients in your clinic and taking the opportunity today to address a a wide range of of, of really interesting questions. So, I just want to conclude, Dr. Matu. Do you have any sort of Big picture advice for uh, uh, people who have AMD or their families, any sort of, you know, in your experience uh, in, the, in the clinic and in the lab, sort of a, a you know, big picture uh, thoughts that, that, uh, to leave with those families? Absolutely. So I think um, the, the main thing I would say is that we know that um, the disease, uh, even at the early stages, can have a profound effect on, on patients' vision and visual function. And um, it goes without saying that having regular care from a doctor that that you have an established relationship with and that you trust and you feel like you're getting um, thoughtful care from is critically important. But I think the other side of it is to to really kind of um, get a sense of how your visual function is on a day-to-day basis. And Beyond um, the doctors who monitor the disease, there are a wealth of resources um, from visual aids to um, uh, low vision clinics and uh, a number of different strategies to try to maximize day-to-day vision um, for, uh, for, for, for one's lifestyle. And I think that we, as we understand more about how visual um, uh, loss or visual limitation affects our patients' day-to-day lives, we really need to have a focus on, on how to combat that so we can have patients who are remaining as active as they can, staying uh, social and engaged with their communities, and um, and, and also being able to, to stay connected uh, to their families and loved ones. Um, and I think that's, that's something that um, uh, it's incumbent not only on on patients and our families to, to 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 strive for that and want that, but also us as providers to recognize and and try to deliver. Yeah, well, that thank you. That's that's really helpful. I think uh, that touches on a lot of the great uh, you know great things for people to consider the the multifaceted nature of a disease like this in terms of lifestyle and, and caregiving and 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 uh, you know taking advantage of a lot of the resources that, as you say, are available. Uh, in communities across the country. So, so Dr. Matu, just want to thank you uh, on behalf of Bright Focus. I uh, really appreciate uh, um, your, your time and your, your great advice today. 
Well, thank you, and pleasure to be here. Great. And so to our listeners, you can always call Bright Focus toll-free at 800-437-2423. That's 800-437-2423. You can find a lot of materials about macular degeneration, glaucoma, Alzheimer's disease, resources for caregiving uh, at our website, brightfocus.org. That's brightfocus.org. And appreciate your joining us today and, and um Hope to talk with you on the April 25th chat. Thank you. The information provided in this recording is a public service of Bright Focus Foundation and is not intended to constitute medical advice. Please consult your physician for personalized medical, dietary, and or exercise advice. Any medications or supplements should only be taken under medical supervision. Bright Focus Foundation does not endorse any medical products or therapies.